All right, good morning. It is good to be with you right now. I want to do a little bit of housekeeping uh, before we dive into the word. I want to uh, encourage you uh, to be engaged in the social media presence that we have, not just right now by uh, jumping into the conversation in the chat room, but also by engaging uh, throughout the week. So we're gonna be offering additional resources like we always do. We've got deep dive, uh, you know, some uh, schools are closing in various areas. And so uh, we actually are putting together uh, a, a new series on homeschooling to help parents uh, who are having to navigate even for a short period of time, uh, uh, you know, teaching their children at home. So we're trying to create resources. Want to encourage you to be engaged in the conversation, engaged in the uh, format. So uh, you can do that by subscribing, uh, liking, and then literally making those little comments down below. And let me tell you something, as you are making those comments, uh, what happens is uh, it, you kind of break the ice, just like in a room, and then other people will begin to respond. And so that's going to really help us during this time to get people engaged in the conversation. So if you're able to do that, we would love for you to be a part of that. Now, uh, we are here with just a skeleton crew uh, operating the service, but I want to give a big thank you to that crew who has shown up to help make sure that we are able to do this live stream. If you don't mind, they're in the chat room right now. Give them a uh, thank you and a virtual hug, uh, an air high five. I would really appreciate that from you going to them. In fact, there they are right there, uh, and they are working very diligently uh, to help bring this to you. So thank you guys for doing this and thank you for watching at home right now. And then we will have uh, the normal edited version of the service online, hopefully a little bit later today. Our goal is to have those up on the same day. All right. So that being said, uh, I wanted to share one more thing with you. Uh, we, we, we are uh, in a very interesting time, to say the least, right? Uh, I don't know if you have been to the grocery store. If you have not, I would recommend it. I would recommend not being one of those people who completely freaks out. Um, and, and one of the interesting things right now is the run on toilet paper. Uh, I am not sure if you are aware of this, but if you are not, I want to be the one to let you know that this is not an intestinal virus. It is a respiratory virus. And so uh, stocking up on six months of toilet paper, I mean, I could be wrong. Uh, in five months, we might be sitting here going, hey, this is, this is gold. But I would say right now, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I'm watching videos of people literally getting into fist fights over toilet paper. In fact, somebody was showing me this morning that on eBay, uh, if you are needing toilet paper, you can buy it uh, by the square. That's right. Right now, bids uh, have hit $10,000 a square. Uh, we are assuming that this is somebody playing a joke, but if it is not, I have a lot of toilet paper for sale, all right? Uh, so the point is, is it's okay to have a little bit of fun. This is a very serious situation. Uh, but guys, you know what? We can be a voice of reason 
in a world gone mad. In fact, that's what we're called to be as the church. And so I want to encourage you to, uh, to be prepared, but not to be foolish. And then I just want to tag one more thing into this. And I want to talk about why we made the decision to go online only. So uh, Governor Kemp yesterday uh, declared a state of emergency for the state of Georgia. Uh, that was following the president's de, uh, state of emergency declaration made the day before. So uh, when he made the declaration, one of the things that the governor said was that he wanted to encourage faith-based ministries not to meet uh, corporately. And we made the decision that if that was what our leadership was asking of us and we were able to do it, we wanted to do that. And so uh, we knew that we had the resources, the tools to be able to deliver the message and, uh, and the worship experience into people's homes. And so we wanted to step up and, and do that. Now, this is not out of fear, all right, but it is out of a place of being responsible um, and, care, and showing care for the people around us. Uh, those people that we interact with and that we connect with. So those are some really important things for you to understand. There's also another opportunity here. The, the church has over, I would say, probably the last 50 years uh, been given a stigma of being anti-science or anti-doctors. And the truth is, is that that's, that, that isn't really where all of us as believers land. In fact, uh, I love science, and I think that science undergirds and lifts up the, the entire story of God. And it aligns with what we find in Scripture. And so there's a real opportunity for us not to be the people who are ignoring science, ignoring the doctors, and saying, we'll do whatever we want, God, blah, blah, blah. Instead, we can work hand in hand and not be foolish, but show wisdom and love to our community around us. So that being said, that's why we're doing what we're doing. We don't know how long this is going to last, but what we know is that God will see us through, and that is true. Regardless of the storm, we will get to the other side because God is faithful, and he'll see us through. So uh, I want to say welcome. Thank you for being a part of the online stream. We are in week two of this series that uh, we are talking about the Bible. And last week, uh, we, I kind of got into the academic uh, side of how we uh, measure whether or not an uh, ancient text is considered to have any integrity. Today we're going to go a little bit further with that, looking at some of what we have discovered through archaeological digs and then how we measure or how we respond to those uh, findings when it comes to uh, uh, establishing authority and integrity within the actual scriptures. I think that there are basically three types of personalities that approach the Bible. Uh, the first being the skeptic. The skeptic is that person who uh, really rides high on their emotions. That's the person who would say, you know what, I, I just don't feel like this could be true. And so a skeptic is going to walk into the room and all the data in the world could be being pumped out to them and they would be going, I don't know if I believe that. The second type of person is the analytic person. And this is the person who, who they care about the data, right? But they have a measure of skepticism in them. And so they're going to uh, li listen to the data when it comes from somebody that they feel like that they trust. And that, whether they trust them or not, could be 
based entirely on emotion, right? And I, I will be honest with you, sometimes I fall into this category. I'll walk into an event all, already prepared in my heart to discount whatever that person is saying, whatever the communicator is going to be saying, because uh, I have come to some type of emotional decision uh, that I don't trust them, I don't like them, and so I come ready to discount whatever it is that they have to say. Uh, this is a problem for analytical people, uh, because sometimes we can take data and just kind of shrug it off because it doesn't line up with how we feel or what we want the truth to look like. And then the third type of person is that person that is the academic. And this is the person that doesn't allow their emotions to get involved at all. They only look at data. The problem that we have here is that the, our emotions, a lot of times, that is the way that the Holy Spirit is interacting with us. And so the, inter, the Holy Spirit is interacting to lead us and guide us. And a lot of times that, that comes through that feeling. And the problem with being strictly academic, as we will discover in today's uh, message, is that acad academia gets it wrong sometimes. And a lot of times, uh, assumptions are made based on the current data set that's in front of them, and then additional pieces will be discovered and added, additional pieces of data will be brought in, and then all of a sudden uh, the academic standard or the academic position has to be changed. And so we have to keep that in mind, whether it is looking at science, whether it's looking at even aspects within math, and especially when we're talking about history and literature, we are constantly finding additional uh, 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 pieces of the puzzle, and it is constantly kind of tweaking and changing the image that we have. So our questioning of Scripture is a conditioned response that, with objective reasoning, you and I can overcome. If we, are, if we can come at this with an objective sense of reasoning, you and I can overcome this idea of questioning Scripture. What do I mean by that? In the end, it's this. is It's perfectly okay to question Scripture. But you and I need to come to a place where we finally resolve that there is some integrity within the Scriptures, and there is some purpose within the Scriptures, and that God knows what He's doing. And so for the believer, we want to come in as the uh, skeptic. We want to move to that analytical person, and then ultimately we want to land in a place where we resolve that we have a enough data in front of us, and we say that beyond a shadow of a doubt, we have now both experienced and seen who God is. So, question, how good are the manuscripts of which the texts are based, right? How good are they? Uh, this, for us, uh, comes from the actual, or I guess in order to answer this, we're going to actually have to look at the, uh, the actual manuscripts beginning with uh, how they were prepared. So there are two primary sources that the manuscripts are presented on. The first is uh, papyrus, papyrus uh, being this, uh, this, uh, the, this, this reed that is taken and separated and then they will run a strips of this reed vertically. And then they will run another section of it horizontally, lay them on top of each other, press them together, and allow the literally the juices that come from them being smashed together to create a bond, to create, in essence, what, what we would see as being like a, a type of paper that they would write on. And this is a picture of what papyrus looks like. And you can see kind of there's a, a consistent pattern to it. So on one side, it will be horizontal. On the other side, 
side that uh, those wreaths will be uh, vertical. Now, uh, our Greek New Testaments that we have uh, are made up of 450 pages of papyrus. So when I say we have, I'm talking about in, in the context of these old manuscripts. So they, they consist of 450 pages each, and we have over 5,800 copies of this. So it's not like we have, uh, you know, uh, a little bit, you know, of a copy here and a few fragments over there. We have over 5,800 copies on this papyrus, and each of them consists of 450 pages. Now, the second type of material that was used, and this was used a little bit later, and that was parchment. And parchment is literally the skins of an animal, and they would pull the skin, they would stretch it out, dry it out, and just so that you have a, a picture of what that looks like, uh, uh, you'll see that they would stretch it out and then they would write on it. Now, I'll, I'll tell you what you will notice is that the parchment does not hold up as good as the papyrus. And so the papyrus is actually an older technique but it was a thicker, more rigid, and, and more difficult to, to actually carry around and build up these manuscripts with. So they moved to parchment, but they did not know at the time that the ink would not set as well on it as it did on the parchment, uh, I mean, as it did on the papyrus. And also, we know that uh, because the, the parchments are made out of skin, that in certain environments, it actually would decompose completely to be ruined, and the parchment would actually last a lot longer. Now, uh, two of the most famous archaeologists when it comes to talking about the uh, manuscripts and talking about the discovery of the text uh, are men by the name of Bernard Grenfell and Arthur Hunt. Uh, in 1897, these two men were in Egypt, and uh, they knew that the conditions in Egypt were really uh, perfect for preserving any copies of text in general, just literature, because of how dry it is, the lack of moisture, and they knew that at digging, which of course archaeologists are known for doing, that as they went down, they would be able to find the most preserved uh, copies of text. And actually what happened was is that they were on a dig and they thought that what they saw at their feet was a leaf as they moved the sand back, they found uh, or discovered their very first piece of papyrus, and it was from there that they actually found thousands upon thousands of writings. And uh, we pulled a, a, a not just scripture from that, a lot of it was uh, things like, uh, you know, people's notes on laws that were being passed or orders for supplies that were being produced. And so there was a lot of that that was found in there, but there was also a lot uh, of the manuscripts for what we see in the New Testament. And even to this day, many of them are just in crates in London, still having not been sorted out out and gone through. So when we talk about, uh, and the reason I mention this is because when we talk about uh, validated portions of the text, we're actually not taking into account the fact that there are actually a lot of discoveries that are still sitting there boxed up and have not actually been uh, looked at. Now, when we do go through them and we do begin the process of actually identifying the text, uh, each of those papyruses are given a, a name, uh, and the majority of the time uh, when we're talking about the papyrus, they're actually given a number. And so uh, one of the more uh, popular is what is referred to as P. 
1945. It was discovered in the winter of 1929 into the year 1930. This particular text is one that has uh, uh, was dated at the time as being the oldest. One of the interesting things is that at this point, it was believed, uh, and one of the I think one of the arguments actually from non-believers was that a lot of the Christian scripture was not even penned maybe until the year 400. And what this particular papyrus was able to show, because it was dating back into the year 300, was that you actually have a copy of the text that's 100 years older than what non-believers were claiming the scriptures were created in. So there was an argument being made that, uh, that the Bible or the New Testament as we, as we have today was actually penned long after Jesus' death, and therefore they were using that argument to discredit it. Now remember me talking a moment ago about how in academia things change because of the actual access to resources that we have and the data that we have. This is one of those cases because all of academia had to come and begin to change the narrative that now we know that there were copies that were even back to 300 AD. Uh, P66 uh, became what was known as the oldest copy of John, and they dated it to 200 AD. So then with within academia, they got moved back even further that they began to say, okay, well, now we have a copy that dates back even further. So we know that at least the this was written uh, by the year 200. And I'll, I'll point out one more thing for you, that the consensus, when this document was found, the consensus became that uh, that the book of John was actually penned probably around the year 170. And so you actually had uh, uh, scholars beginning to teach. And, and, and I want to just say, when I talk about scholars here, a lot of times in service when I talk about a scholar, I'm talking about a believer, somebody that's a scholar within the, the realm of Christendom. But in this case, we're talking about scholars that move beyond the realm of Christendom. And they began to make the argument that the book of John wasn't even written until the year 170. And so the argument was that the book of John was kind of somebody read some other text and then created their own and created a fabrication claiming that uh, they were John, the one that Jesus loved. But, uh, and so this became part of that kind of evidence for them. But what it did for Christians was it helped us to understand that now we have a copy of what we consider to be canon, which I'll get to in a moment, that dates back even further than those that were previous. I'll go through uh, a, a, another couple of details here. One of the things that's interesting about this particular one that was found is that it had between four and five hundred mistakes, which again, scholars began to say, now look, this is this just tears apart its credibility because you have all these mistakes being made. But what they began to realize was that the reason we know that there were between four and five hundred mistakes within the text is because the very same person who wrote it is the one who came and made corrections to it. So this shows us one this shows, this shows us a couple of things. First of all, whoever it was was not a very good scribe, right? They weren't very good at their job. But number two, they they really cared about it being right. So in order to go back and make corrections, that means they had to have some type of proof text that they were looking at. And so this particular papyrus 
could lead us to believe that at 200 AD, when this copy was being made, it was being made from something. There was an authoritative standard at the time that the copy was being made from, and this particular scribe really wanted to make sure that it was accurate. Another one of these was P64, discovered in the 1920s and dated to be 400 in its writing. But then in the 1950s, uh, a new measurement was used to determine exactly how it is that we get to uh, 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 dating these, and they moved it from 400 to 200. And then in 1994, people went crazy because they came in and dated that particular one all the way back to 70 AD. There are scholars that believe that this could be the oldest actual papyrus that we have uh, of a portion of Scripture. And if that dating is correct, then that means that this particular copy was written or made while people who were alive during the time of Jesus were still alive, right? So this means that this falls within the generation of Jesus. Another one is P52. Uh, this one was found among several manuscripts in 1920. So they brought all these manuscripts together. It was brought in and it began the cataloging process. But remember me telling you that even today they have just crates filled with portions of the manuscripts. Well, this was the case then, and it wasn't until the 1930s that they pulled it out, and the person who was looking at it actually took photographs and sent it out because they discovered something. Remember that the prevailing argument here in the 30s was that the book of John was not written until sometime just before 200 AD, but what this had been dated to was uh, somewhere in the year 100, uh, and on one side, it had John 18, verses 31 through 33, and on the other side, uh, it had verses 37 and 38. So if the argument was being made that at the earliest the book of John was written at 170, they now had a problem because this had been universally accepted as coming from the year 100, and it had the writings of John on it. So why does this matter for us? This matters because what it tells us is that we actually have copies of the manuscript that come back to within the generation of not just Jesus, but of the apostles themselves. We have portions of the text that date all the way back, and we're able to look at those portions of the text and, and see how they line up with entire manuscripts that we have found from even into the years of 400 AD and beyond. So, uh, there are different types of texts uh, when we are talking about looking at uh, how it is that we authoritate or uh, validate a manuscript. You have two types. One are called documentary texts, and these are texts that have dates on them. So the scriptures would not be considered documentary texts. Uh, a documentary text would be something that had to do with legislation that was being passed or a shipping manifest. So they'll have a shipping manifest that will have a date on it. And so that would go with the item that was being taken out. So this is what was ordered. This is what we're bringing. And this is the date in which it happened. So they'll take those and then they get uh, uh, literary texts, right? And these literary texts uh, do not have dates on them. 
okay? And this would be the scriptures. So what they'll do is they'll take the literary text and the documentary text, and they'll take the date from it. Then they'll compare the handwriting. They'll pull handwriting samples, and they'll pull uh, references to certain events that we know took place during a certain time. And that is how they're able to line. That's one way that they're able to line up exactly when a text might have been written, okay? And then there is the, the process of carbon dating, but this requires taking a portion of the text and actually burning it to be able to do. And so because some of these are so old and there's so so few of them, it is really difficult for museums and historians to make the decision to do that. And then the problem with the carbon dating is that at the 2,000-year mark, it still has a variation possibility of within 100 years. And so they might carbon date it, and it could have a 100-year variance on either side, so it doesn't become as reliable as we want it to be, because the, the goal is, is to try to find how we connect the scriptures to the generation of Jesus and his followers, right? So they compare these through handwriting, through the materials that are used, and the references that are made. Now, there are a number of arguments that are regularly used to come or to combat uh, the validity and the authority of Scripture. So one of those for us is that the copies don't match. Uh, this will be an argument that some will say the copies don't match, and because there are differences within the scriptures, uh, they cannot be trusted. I'm going to give you an example of one of these variances that are mentioned. John chapter 1, beginning here, or actually just we're going to look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, uh, I have highlighted these for us. There are two reference points within the scripture when you're looking this up online. Uh, and so these notes are uh, little, they, they, are, they are markers for us to look at the footnotes. There's additional information that's given. This is one of the reasons why we use the language that says that, that, we, that, the, that the Bible is one of the most honest texts ever presented to humanity because when there are variances, the translations don't try to hide that. They don't try to make a most educated guess and just kind of give that to you. What they do is they do the best that they can, but then they create footnotes so that you'll understand within some integrity in front of being presented to you that there is some additional information or there might be some disagreements when it comes to the text. So let's look at this reference for A. Uh, it says here, uh, John 1.18, or the only one, okay, because it references here the only God. So, or it could say the only one who is God and some manuscripts, the only son. So what we have is we have among these manuscripts that we've actually been able to get, looking at them and creating the translations, some of them translate to say who is God and some translate to say who is the only son. Now, what you have then is you have two variations of the text, and we're not talking about uh, a variation where it's just like we found one manuscript that said this. This is actually a, a pretty major divide, uh, and both uh, what we would consider legs of this divide actually go way back. So it's not like one of them surfaced in the year 500 AD and the rest of it was different in the year 200 because most of the time the translators would say, hey, we're going to go with the oldest consistency. Both of these actually have legs going pretty far back 
back. And so uh, what happens is, is we end up with this variance. And so how is it that we're able to understand that this could happen and still say that there's integrity within the scripture? Well, remember that we have originals. So what you have is you have uh, Paul sitting down writing a letter, right? So he pins a letter and he sends it out. Or you have an autograph, and an autograph looks like this. It's uh, Paul dictating it to somebody. Then when it is done, he signs it. Okay, that's an autograph. Or an autograph would be that uh, Paul had written it, and then that very first copy of it, the very first replica that's made, would be considered an autograph, right? Now, another thing to consider here is that when uh, people were writing at this day, in this day and age, it was very different than what we have today. So uh, anybody ever been working on a document for school or for work? And, and this was way more prevalent uh, 10 years ago, uh, but uh, you lost all the data, right? Because you forgot to save. And then there was a power outage and everything that you had typed on was gone, right? Th that moment of panic. I, I still get that sometimes when I'm working on a video project, right? So I'm doing all this creative work. I'm creating uh, cuts within it and I'm adding special effects, sound effects, and you do all this work and all of a sudden your computer crashes or the power goes out and you're like, oh, did I just lose hours and hours of work? Well, can you imagine if, if the only way for you to create a text was to write it, right, by hand on papyrus, and, and then you had that, and then something were to happen to that single copy, all of your work, all of your effort would be lost. So what was common practice among writers during this time was to actually themselves pin multiple copies. So uh, Josephus, for himself, he actually wrote, him, wrote out several copies of his text. And not only did they create duplicates, but oftentimes if they spoke both, both or, or several languages, for instance, here we have Greek and we have Latin, we have uh, 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 different uh, Hebrew, the, the writers would actually write out the translations themselves. So what we don't know uh, is how many copies of a letter did Paul himself make before he sent it out. Uh, it was very, very common to send one out and to keep one for yourself. And so the fact that we end up with these variances going all the way back to within a generation of Jesus sometimes, it really doesn't create a problem uh, in the sense that somebody out there is being unfaithful to the text. We literally could have even had that description, uh, that variance happen from the actual person who was writing it. Now, this is good to know that only 0.2% of these variances have potential meaningful inf uh, influence, all right? That only 0.2% of the variances within the New Testament fall into a category like that where it will say the Son or God, right? That 70% of the variances that scholars reference are actually spelling inconsistencies. And when we think about spelling, you and I, we think about, well, somebody's just a poor speller, right? So uh, you go to the spelling bee, and they ask you how to spell Pharaoh, and you, 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 you botch it because you don't know how to spell Pharaoh, right? It's one of those words they throw out there uh, to confuse you. And you might think that, well, you know, they're spelling inconsistencies. That was the problem. That's really not the issue for these writers. Uh, something that's interesting about the Hebrew is that the Hebrew is written, uh, the alphabet 
is not like ours where it creates this phonetical uh, ability to read. Each letter had a meaning. And so by understanding the meaning of the letter, when they put those letters together, right, you had a series of meanings that now created a meaning. So when we look at the Hebrew writing and we look at a word, it's not just sounding it out, using it in the context of a sentence. It, it, is, it is actually that word, if you understand the meaning of each of these letters within the Hebrew alphabet, you can actually determine what they are trying to communicate right there within that single word. Okay, so a lot of times, and John actually does this in his writings, uh, they will change, they'll be talking about a topic, but he will change the spelling of a word to help us more accurately understand what it is that he's communicating. And so 70% of these variances, right, uh, being uh, spelling inconsistencies are not, they actually don't even line up with being inconsistencies. They are probably trying to communicate more accurately to us what it is that the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding. So second argument that comes up is that there are gaps in the early timeline, meaning that we just don't have copies of Scripture during uh, those the, the days of Christ or the days following Christ, right? So uh, the question then has to become in this argument is how long were books in use before they were replaced or discarded, okay? So we find these ancient texts, and we have to ask the question, how long would a library, okay, or a family hold on if they were lucky enough to be able to have a manuscript of anything? How long would that manuscript be held to be used. Uh, I don't know if you have a family Bible. Some people might have a family Bible. I have a, I have two family Bibles. One that uh, was a Bible that sat on the table at my grandmother's house. It was uh, one of those that has a, a picture of Jesus on it, and it has the gold kind of foil leafing around the outside of the pages, and when you opened it up, it was huge. It had illustrations inside of it. You, you know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've seen one of these types of Bibles. And then I have another old Bible, and that was my granddad's that he, he actually carried with him. His mom gave it to him. It's just the New Testament. Gave it to him when he left for World, for world War II, he, and he carried that with him as he was deployed. And so I actually have a copy of that. Uh, I actually have that Bible, and, and, the, and both of these Bibles have aged. And uh, the, the family Bible has gotten kind of stiff. The cover is kind of brittle. It's got some cracks in it, right? And so I try not to open it very often because the binding is getting weak. And then the New Testament copy that I have of my granddad's, that one, the cover has come off of it, and it is very, very brittle. In fact, I have it sealed up in a bag so that oxygen doesn't even get to it right now until one day I can afford to, to have it actually put in some type of casing to be preserved. It's important to me. Uh, it adds a lot of value to my life. But let me tell you something. Like, I don't just go out and buy a new Bible uh, every year, right? We go, we'll make an investment in one of these paperback Bibles, and, and, and now we've got access to them digitally. But if we have access, if we, if we purchase a paper one, we will hold on to that, right? And we will use that year after year. So how long was it that the manuscripts uh, or an ancient literature was in circulation before either it was needing to be 
thrown away or discarded, right? So a man by the name of George Houston asked this question, and he was not coming at it from a perspective of trying to establish a timeline for the Bible. Instead, what he was doing was looking at just ancient literature in general, and what he discovered by looking at uh, ancient Roman uh, libraries during uh, the, the time that coincidentally falls into where we're talking about with the generation of Christ was that these actual uh, manuscripts were kept for between 150 and 400 years. So the papyrus-bound versions of Scripture uh, that we find could have been in circulation themselves for between 150 and 400 years, right? So if we use this standard, then we can conclude that the manuscripts we have dating to 200 or 300 AD were copied from originals or autographs, meaning that if we have one that is that we can date back to 200 AD, it is very feasible, very reasonable to think that it was a copy of the original, right? Not that every 10 years we were throwing them away, but these things were staying in circulation for hundreds of years. Now, uh, this says the fourth, we didn't get this updated, but it's actually the third argument here uh, on this, is that the version we have is manipulated and or falsified. This becomes an argument that a lot of people will make against the integrity of scriptures, right? So, If we establish an accepted academic process for establishing a timeline and for dating found copies, then we must assume fabrication occurred early on. What does that mean? It means that if we can come and say that we believe that the copies that we have dating back to 400 AD are actual copies of the original text, then that means that that what we would consider to be original, right, during the time of Christ, that's where the falsification had to have happened. Because the problem that you've got is that the, the Gospels, first of all, there were four of them, okay, right? And they were written by four individuals. So you have four independent Gospels, as we call them, right? And they were written by four individuals in four different locations. And then the second problem that you run into is that they were distributed together, all four of them, as well as being distributed independently. So you have the four Gospels that go out. Matthew will be sent to somebody. Mark will be sent to somebody. Luke and John. And then other copies will be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John being sent out. And so in this lifespan of the apostles and the followers of the apostles, there becomes a habit of taking the Gospels and sending them out, right? So that that leads me to the third problem, and that is that as it was being transmitted, people would have called out changes because there were so many copies that were being sent around. Instead, they laid down their lives instead of calling it out. Instead, what was happening was is they were reading it, and we found that in the early church, they were so bought into what was happening, they were not themselves uh, saying, oh, I don't know if there's any validity to this. They were actually ready to go and die. They would be brought into coliseums to fight lions and gladiators, uh, and the, the only thing they needed to do was to renounce 
the foolishness of the gospel and what we find through the writings of history, uh, through other external, extra-biblical writings, was that they would not do it. They would sit there and face whatever it was that was coming at them because they so believed in what was written in these gospels. And then uh, a fourth problem was that by 300 AD, we have manuscripts that have reached Africa. So this is important for us to understand that, that if this was fabricated, we would have massive inconsistencies that we would find the, the kind of like, if you think about like dropping a pebble into uh, a body of water, right? You'll find the ripples of that will move on and on and on, right? So we would see the ripples of those falsified manuscripts uh, as we were collecting them from around the world. They would not match. They would not line up. But what we have discovered is that whether we pull a manuscript out of Africa or we pull it out of Egypt, that there is a less than 1% variance and a less than 0.2% variance uh, when it comes to anything that's meaningful. The majority of it is differences in spelling. So how can that happen if, if they have been falsified? There's no other work in the history of mankind that has been able to accomplish the feat of staying consistent the way that it does. And then the fourth one, it says number five, again, uh, our slide is incorrect here, says that the books of the New Testament, uh, this is an argument, were picked by Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. So you'll get some who will argue, well, we can't even look at them as being authoritative because we're talking uh, over a thousand years later, there is uh, Constantine, the Council of Nicaea, they're coming together and they're making a declaration on what the actual books of the New Testament would be. Now, this theory is actually made popular in recent history by Dan Brown, an author of the book, The Da Vinci Code, in which he claims that there was a conspiracy that took place and that the Council of Nicaea was kind of a fraud to kind of push and take control over the text. Now, the problem is that, that, that this in itself is a problematic statement because we actually can go and read what, was, uh, what took place with the Council of Nicaea, and the evidence is conclusive. There is no chance that what is claimed in that statement is true. Uh, Constantine wanted 50 copies of the New Testament, and he wanted them done very quickly, so he needed a decision made. Constantine wanted a concise New Testament. He wanted to be able to say that among the, the church sects, the, 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 the divisions within the church, that there might be some, some varying belief on which books are acceptable, but there needs to be a group of books that they all agree on. So the Council of Nicaea established what they call minimalist canon. Right? So they did not sit here and read the text and go, hmm, uh, we think this one's good and this one's bad. What they actually did was they listened to all of the church fathers, all of the leaders that were in the various uh, uh, separations among the church, and they said, tell us which books you believe to be authoritative. They brought all of that list in, and then they looked at what overlapped, right? And they said, well, everybody, for the most part, accepts these books. And, and with, it, with, with very little uh, separation from that process. There were a couple of books within the New Testament that were uh, taken in because uh, compelling arguments were made by majorities, right? They did not come together and try to convince people that they were really smart and they were the ones that needed to do this. They were looking for the consensus of what the church was already doing. 
Now, how do we know this? They recorded all of this down in a codex, every decision that they made, why they were making it, and how they came to the conclusion. And you can go online, you can actually look that up for yourself and, and see the actual notes that led to what we would consider to be the canon of the New Testament. Some interesting facts as I close right here. Uh, 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 Tortilleon is a, uh, one of the early church fathers, and he defends Paul's writings. People were taking Paul's writings, and they were, they were changing uh, portions of it. They were falsifying what he was saying. They were making claims that were untrue. And these copies were circulating based on what he, what he is teaching his people. He says there are false teachings around Paul that are circulating. This is good information for us to have. He's writing this out for us to understand that the church is not only aware of the actual integrity of scripture, but they know that there are false copies being made and they are actively taking and destroying them and calling those people out. So when scribes were putting their own little bit into it, their own two cents, like a, like a pastor might, right? They're taking those and they're calling it out. And he says that he's defending the writings. And then he references the autographs that anyone can see in 190 AD. He makes reference to the actual first copies being made and where you could go and see them. So this is what he says. He says, don't be a fool and believe these false copies because we can still go and actually look at the originals. This is not an uncommon practice even today. Uh, I have talked about this before, but you have a, a book that is called The Maxims of George Washington. That book was put out just uh, within the generation of his granddaughter, Nancy Cuspis, after he died. So when George Washington passed away, before his granddaughter died, this book came out. It's called The Maxims of George Washington. Basically, what are the things he believed in? What did he stand for? And inside of that, uh, the author sent word to Nancy Cuspis and said, listen, there are a lot of people making the uh, argument that George Washington was a deist, that he was not an actual Christian. How would you respond to that? And she wrote this really beautiful letter, and she said that, in, in essence, that to question his Christianity and his love of Jesus would be the same as to question his patriotism. In fact, it would be the same as to uh, question every heroic act he did for this country. She goes on to talk about in that letter how that he uh, was adamant that all of the troops had access to uh, a, a pastor, to somebody who could be teaching them while they were traveling. And so if they were out and they came across another regiment and they did not have a chaplain, he would release his chaplain to go with them and then he would take on the chaplain duties. And then we come into the, I believe it was the 60s, and we have two Harvard professors who want to take the book and modernize it. And when they do, they remove that entire section from the book because they said that it's not relevant for today. So if you go and get a copy of that book today in hardback, it has that entire section from his granddaughter removed because they did not feel that it was relevant. But in context, some of us might say that that is actually falsifying the record. And this is the same process. People who have an agenda, they'll look at the text and they'll pull portions of it to make it say what they want it to say. And uh, Tertullian is coming at them and saying, you don't get to do that especially given the fact that we have autographs that we can go and look at, ones that have Paul's signature on them, they're still present. Pretty powerful stuff. Another uh, 
church father by the name of Bishop Peter, he tells his audience that the gospel of John is actually being held in the church at Ephesus where, and he uses this language, the faithful visit to kiss it. And he says that, that it is still present to that day. So, how powerful is that, that in the context of the timing that we're talking about, where we're able to date back some of our oldest manuscripts, there are church fathers who are referencing the fact that these copies in 200 and 300 AD are mirrored copies of originals and autographs. What does this tell us? This tells us that we can have great confidence when it comes to the Scripture. You and I can have great confidence when it comes to the integrity of the New Testament. And this is what I believe, is that it creates a picture for you and I that says that what we're reading is what the Holy Spirit was compelling the authors to pen. And how does this impact your life? Well, first of all, you might be listening right now, and you might be one of those people who falls into that place of being analytical, or you would consider yourself to be an academic, and so you really have struggled with your faith, especially from the academic standpoint, because a lot of times you don't allow your emotions to engage in the process. And so you've said, well, you know, I keep hearing from the outside that the Bibles are, are falsified, and there's no way to verify the text, but yet we live in a day unlike any other where what we can do is take the same academic standards and processes that they are using to verify other ancient texts. We can lay them on Scripture, and what we'll discover is that the, the Holy Bible is unlike any other book ever written in the, the form of its preservation. The text is consistent, and I believe that when you pull out your mobile device and you open up the Bible app and you begin to read, you are reading the inspired words of God for you, and it can change your life. So maybe today you want to make a decision to, to, to make a course correction in the way that you live. Maybe you would say, hey, I've already declared God to be Lord of my life, but I've kind of walked this type of faith that is like, well, you know, if there is no God, I will say at least I lived a good life. Paul says that if that's the life that you're living, if you're living this life that, that says, well, I'm doing this just in case, he says you're to be pitied above all. He says, because the truth is, is that you can interact with God, that you can experience His presence. And so today, maybe with some of this being presented to you, you're going, man, there is actually some validity to the fact that, that the text I have came from the very people who walked alongside of Jesus. I will say that this is reality, and today you could make a change in the way that you live life. And maybe you are not a believer Today, you would say, you know what, there's validity here, and that feeling, that, that tugging that you're experiencing right now, that's, that's the Holy Spirit. That's God crying out, saying, I've given you the word. I've given you direction. I'm ready for you. Come, be mine. And that tugging that you're feeling, that's God. And the Scripture says that if we will believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. You and I, brothers and sisters, for eternity, rescued by the only one that can rescue us. So right now, listen, in homes that are watching, uh, I want to encourage you to just, where you're at, just to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. 
pause. I'm, I'm sure that there are some of you who uh, might even be in the kitchen taking an opportunity to, to get lunch ready while you're watching, and I, I don't fault you for that, but I wonder if you could just pause for a moment where you're at and just allow God to speak. I mean, what, what could God say if we were to pause? If you're a believer, I want you to begin to pray for the unbelievers that might be watching right now. I want you to, to pray for them that, that, that the Holy Spirit will be doing what only the Holy Spirit can do in their lives. And if you're an unbeliever right now and you want to make a decision to make Jesus Lord of your life, this is what I want you to do. I want you to just pray with me right now. And the scripture again says that if we believe in our heart, confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. There's no magic formula to this. It is literally a prayer like this, and you can pray this one with me. Jesus, I come to you right now acknowledging my own faults and my need for a Savior. I declare you Lord of my life, and I want to commit myself to your ways. Help me to know and understand your word, and may it transform me from the inside out. Use me to be light in the darkness. In your mighty name, amen and amen. Guys, listen, uh, we're going to be doing this again next week, and, and for the foreseeable future, we'll continue to come together. We'll be kicking off a brand new series next week. Please make plans to be uh, watching this live. If you feel comfortable, gather together with your, with your friends and family and do it as a group. Uh, continue to interact with us. Now more than ever, our, our virtual lobby matters, and that is the engagement that we have through social media. So use your voice. Let us hear from you. If you need prayer right now, you can even make those prayers known in the chat room. So if you have a prayer, write it out right there. And and then if you're watching, I want to challenge you. Look at the prayer requests that get mentioned and be praying for them. Amen. We love you guys. Have a great week. Go change your world.